Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast. Today's Monday, October 5th, 2020. In today's podcast, I welcome back Dr. Sarp Axel to discuss first trimester pregnancy loss, also known as miscarriage. Unfortunately, miscarriage is very common, particularly early in pregnancy. As such, many, if not most, women will experience an early pregnancy loss at some time in their lives. But how it actually happens can greatly differ. For some women, they'll experience what most people think of as a miscarriage. They're pregnant and then will have bleeding and cramping and pass the pregnancy. For other women, they'll feel perfectly fine and then have an ultrasound which diagnoses a miscarriage. For others, they may actually be in a state of uncertainty where it's not even clear if the pregnancy is going to be viable or not, and they need to wait for further testing. So on the podcast today, Sarp and I discuss each of these scenarios, what is happening, how each of these situations is managed medically or even with procedures as needed. We touch on the emotional care for women with early pregnancy loss, but that topic really deserves its own podcast. So this one is much more focused just on the physical aspect of the miscarriage. I hope you'll find it helpful. It's a really important topic. On Thursday, Dr. Simi Gupta returns to talk about placenta previa, which is another pregnancy-related topic. Next week, we're going to start a pretty comprehensive series on cancer in women, so definitely stay tuned for that. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. All right, we're here with Sarp Axel, MD, obstetrician gynecologist at MFM Associates with me. Sarp, welcome back to Healthful Woman. Glad to be here. How have you been? Great. Got through the, the summer of the pandemic. Yeah, just COVID coping. <laughs> COVID coping. Well, glad to see you. We're, we're doing what we can. We're going to talk today about the management of first trimester pregnancy loss or miscarriage. Mm -hmm. And this is a very common situation, unfortunately. Unfortunately, very, very common. The latest data says, you know, about a quarter of women will experience a miscarriage at some point in their careers. But while it's unfortunate, Good news is it doesn't necessarily bode poorly for future pregnancies. Right. And, you know, the, the miscarriage, it's, it's interesting because you, you'll find varying percentages out there, either in the lay press or on Google or in the literature. And part of that is because the risk is related to the age of the mother. So the risk in a 20-year-old is going to be different from a 30-year-old, 40-year-old. It's more common as you get older. But the other reason is it depends where you, what your starting point is, right? So if you, if you count pregnancy is the point someone, let's say, misses a period and has a positive pregnancy test, you may find that 30 to 50% of those don't end up being a pregnancy, so that's a miscarriage. Whereas if you wait till there's like a heartbeat on ultrasound, then it's like under 10 or 5% is very unusual. So the numbers that are out there and if people are seeing them, it's you have to sort of be careful of exactly what data you're reading. But the point is, it is unfortunately a very common event, usually just related to an abnormal embryo from the beginning, genetically is abnormal, which is again, usually a matter of luck, not a matter of like carrying a gene, like the parents don't have an abnormal gene. It's just, just worked out abnormal in the embryo. And those are sort of, for whatever reason, biology, they know sort of that that's not normal pregnancy. So the development stops and people miscarry. Yeah. There's oftentimes a lot of terms that are tossed around. Yeah. 
confuses people. Of course. Myself I mean, included. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, some of the terms that used to be used when you were in med school mm-hmm. aren't necessarily used as frequently right. now. We didn't actually have writing yet when I was in med school. Uh, uh, written, written, yeah, yeah. Yes. It, wasn't, it wasn't even used yet. Papyrus. We, yeah, we just chiseled it on stones and, you know had apprenticeship one now. But yeah, I mean, listen, the, we were just talking before. I mean, there's terms, miscarriage, spontaneous abortion, pregnancy loss, missed abortion, blighted ovum, and embryonic pregnancy, incomplete abortion, right. all these words that come out. And they're a little bit complicated, but essentially there's really only a few things that are described, but many of them have a lot of different words. I mean, miscarriage, just the idea of someone had a pregnancy and they lost the pregnancy. But we we rarely use that sort of medically, because mm-hmm. um, it's not as descriptive. I mean, there's what, what we call like what we call a spontaneous abortion. How would you explain that to a patient? A spontaneous abortion would be a pregnancy that was and then it stopped growing. And oftentimes the it's because there's some sort of, like you said, genetic abnormality. Right. And then but in that case, usually the pregnancy will come out. Right. Meaning she'll bleed and she'll sort of colloquially miscarry. Right. But what happens though is, you know, nowadays that we use ultrasound so frequently early in pregnancy, we're sort of getting these terms that are somewhat anachronistic because we used to have terms that were just clinical. So someone, a spontaneous abortion, I mean, they, they were pregnant and then they lost the pregnancy. And then this was idea of like these incomplete abortions and threatened abortions. Right. And, and so that was really related to how people presented clinically. But Nowadays, with ultrasound, when someone has bleeding or some question or just are asymptomatic, and we we do an ultrasound and we see that there's a, a pregnancy inside, but we believe it's not viable. So what do you call that, right? So right. it used to be called the missed abortion, which means the pregnancy is no longer viable, but it's still inside. Some people call that a miscarriage, but again, it's still inside. And so the terminology is is complicated and different people use different terms to mean different things. But what we've learned from ultrasound is the sort of older prevailing thought was when somebody miscarries, they have a perfectly normal pregnancy and it keeps growing and growing and growing. And then boom, suddenly they miscarry. They bleed and they pass the pregnancy. And that's actually the exception. That almost never happens. What happens almost always is the pregnancy stops developing at a certain point, whether that's before you can see an embryo after you can see an embryo before heartbeat, after you see heartbeat, sort of de- develops and then stops. And then days, weeks, or even months later, they'll sort of have that yeah. clinical miscarriage. And so if we do an ultrasound in that process or between those times, we can sort of see it unfold, so to speak. It's not unusual for me to have women who come in and they're they're just like, I stopped feeling pregnant. Right. You also have that scenario where they come into you not because they're, they're cramping or they're right. bleeding, but because they don't feel pregnant anymore. Right. And, and I get a lot of those calls, especially when I'm on call in the middle of the night and someone calls in and they say, I don't think I'm pregnant anymore. And but they're not bleeding. They're not cramping. Right. right. And so you bring them in. And like you said, ultrasound has has given us the opportunity to sort of catch it before the cramping and bleeding starts. And so we get to offer patients, you know, different options. Now, it's interesting you said about the symptoms stopping, because it does not mean that the pregnancy is no longer healthy. That is something that's a concern people have. Most of the time, these things are just sort of random. People get symptoms and they don't, or they come and they go, or they get better, they get worse, they get better again. So we don't generally go by that. But if there's a concern, we could always do an ultrasound and find out. For most women who have a perfectly healthy pregnancy, we've seen a heartbeat and then they're no longer nauseous. It's still the normal pregnancy. And then not only that. Not, it's not only unfortunate, it's quite fortunate because now they feel better. So that's a good thing. But 
a lot of times it happens that when we're following an early pregnancy, if someone comes for an early ultrasound, we may not know on the first day, is it a viable pregnancy or not, right? Because until the point where we sort of see an embryo that's a right size with a heartbeat, we're not really sure because in the stages before that, there's like a little empty sac, then there's an empty sac with a yolk sac, then an empty sac with a yolk sac and embryo. There's sort of stages we see, but that's all pre-heartbeat. Right. So you're not really certain. So a lot of times people leave our, our office or ultrasound unit with a little bit of confusion that they don't know if it's a viable pregnancy or not, but it's appropriate confusion because nobody knows. You just sort of have to wait and see how it's going to unfold. The anxiety that comes with that uncertainty yeah. also. It's very common. And most of the time, everything sort of works out, but sometimes it doesn't. That's where it's good to have someone to, to talk through your options with. Right. And it's, it's sort of a tough question of whether it's better for women to have ultrasound as early as possible or not. On the plus side, if you see someone early, you can potentially diagnose an ectopic pregnancy. We had a podcast about that. So that's very useful if someone has an ectopic pregnancy. On the flip side, you get a lot of situations where there's uncertainty. Because yeah. you just did the ultrasound very early and there's supposed to be uncertainty because you just don't know. And so there isn't really the right time when someone has to come in, but there's some benefits to doing it earlier, some benefits to waiting and seeing how it happens. Uh, the benefits are sort of psychological to waiting, mm -hmm. not really mm -hmm. you know, medical in that sense. But if we're you know, confident that the pregnancy is no longer viable, it sort of happens three ways. Either someone, they were pregnant, they come to the office because they experienced what people think of as a miscarriage. They were at home and they had some bleeding, some cramping, then they passed something, right? Mm -hmm. that, you know, like a big clot or whatever it right. is. And then they have less bleeding, less cramping. And then we evaluate them. And if everything's finished, we say you had a miscarriage, you had a complete abortion, you had a spontaneous abortion. We sort of use all those terms, meaning they miscarried essentially. And that's something that happens. On the flip side, you could have someone who, again, either because they had some symptoms, whether it's bleeding or not, or they had just a routine ultrasound, we're confident from ultrasound, the pregnancy is still inside, but it's not viable. And we'll talk about that situation. And the third situation, which is a little bit needs action more quickly is someone's sort of actively bleeding. And it's not a viable pregnancy, which sometimes we call an incomplete. Before we go over these three scenarios, I just want to clarify that we're only talking about situations where we actually diagnose a pregnancy loss or miscarriage. The majority of women who have first trimester bleeding are not miscarrying and will not ultimately miscarry. We're going to do a separate podcast on first trimester bleeding. For now, we're only talking about situations when we actually diagnose a miscarriage. Let's start with the first. So sure. someone is pregnant and then you know they have what everyone describes as sort of a miscarriage experience that happens at home. When they come and see you, afterwards. Let's first talk about what would you do as sort of an assessment of her and the pregnancy sort of physically? We'll, we'll talk about emotionally afterwards, just physically to, to make sure that she's okay or to sort of confirm what happened. What would you do? Yeah. So most of the time when patients call with, with those symptoms, they'll come in, we'll have them have an ultrasound. And then when I see them in the office, I'll, I'll end up doing a pelvic exam. We'll start off with a speculum exam just to see sort of, you know, is there active bleeding going mm -hmm. on? And then we'll do what's called a bimanual exam where mm -hmm. we check to see if the cervix is open. So if the cervix is open, that sort of helps us, like you said, delineate the clinical diagnosis. You know, if, it, if it's closed and she had some bleeding, then it would be what we would call a threatened abortion. If we see that there's a pregnancy, there's a heartbeat, then in that scenario, it's more about reassurance and, and just watching and following up in a week or two with another ultrasound. 
if there's no pregnancy inside and the cervix is is open, then we assume that whatever passed was the pregnancy tissue. And at that point, you know, you just make sure that they're not actively bleeding. Right. And so in that situation, if someone had a miscarriage, the ultrasound confirms that there's nothing left inside the uterus mm-hmm. and her exam is basically normal. Does she need any other treatment, any other care, any other follow-up? In that scenario, I would send a blood level for the pregnancy hormone just to to see if it if it's negative, if it's low. You know, you can get into a pickle with those if the pregnancy hormone's there, but it's not mm-hmm. negative. And you sort of need to follow it up and different providers feel differently about that. Right. Because maybe you weren't I guess in that situation, if you weren't sure she had a pregnancy mm-hmm. before, it's hard to know for sure. If you if you knew there was a pregnancy in the uterus exactly. before, you saw it on ultrasound, and then she has this and comes in and it's no longer there, you know what it was. You know, right. it was a pregnancy she miscarried. I think the situation you're referring to is, which we talked about with Lishlansky, is someone has bleeding, you do an ultrasound, and you see nothing in the uterus, and there's a positive pregnancy test. It, it could be that she had a pregnancy that passed, but you don't really know that for right. certain because you didn't see it before. So you can do hormone levels and make sure they're dropping in this. So that is sometimes a situation where we have to figure it out. But if you knew it was a pregnancy inside and now it's not there and she's doing okay, generally there's no real treatment she needs. No. I and mean, obviously it's it's unfortunate we sort of talk about the emotional aspect of it and plans for the future and right. sort of processing in that way. But from a medical side, they do well. It's not like a miscarriage needs to happen in a hospital or an emergency room or a doctor's office. No, absolutely. They, they happen at home mostly. They're obviously troublesome in the sense it's difficult for people to go through them. But from a medical perspective, it's unlikely to be dangerous. What would be some warning signs for women if they were experiencing a miscarriage at home that either you would tell them as they called you, you need to come in for this, or just so they should know what are the things that should be concerning aside from just that they're miscarrying, obviously, in terms of like their own health? The first thing is is obviously bleeding. Bleeding, that's too much. And then we dive into, you know, what is too much? And if you're if you're soaking through you know, two pads in an hour and and that's going on for an hour or two. That's definitely a situation where I would want to evaluate them. Right. So I'd have them come in or if there's bleeding, but, you know, it may not be going on for so long, but the patient starts to feel lightheaded, dizzy, any of those symptoms that would be concerning that too much blood was lost, that would also be something that I'd I'd want to bring them in for. Right. But that's an uncommon complication for miscarriage. I mean, it happens a few percent of the time, but for the vast majority of people, sort of the experience of it physically is they start getting some light cramping and light bleeding. Then it becomes heavier cramping at the same time they have heavier bleeding. And then it sort of crescendos and then it's exact opposite. The bleeding gets lighter and the cramping gets lighter and then it sort of goes down. And that whole process start to finish is usually a matter of hours. I usually say like eight to 12 hours from, from the start. And so sometimes if it's going on for a long time, even if it's not that heavy, we'll say, you know, it's a little unusual, maybe come in and we'll take a look. Or again, like you said, if it's heavier. And when someone does have a concern that either the bleeding is prolonged or it's heavier, what would be the thing you'd be looking for in terms of to value? What are you concerned that might be happening that's causing the heavy bleeding? In that scenario, you just want to make sure that there's not tissue that's left behind. That's right. That's, you know, causing that that bleeding. Right. Because the term for that that we use is sort of like incomplete mm-hmm. abortion, which means that, you know, that they're having a miscarriage, but not everything came out. And when not everything comes out, the uterus is not going to stop bleeding. Right. Sometimes it will. And you'll find out weeks later that there's tissue left behind. It's not the baby left behind because we're talking about tissue here. No, At yeah. this point, number like one, it's sac, just an embryo, just... the sac or a little piece of placenta or something like that. And so 
in those situations, and that's diagnosed usually by ultrasound. Right. So, right. So someone comes in, let's say they are having a miscarriage or had a miscarriage and they're coming into the office because they're having heavier bleeding and you do an ultrasound and you do suspect that there is some tissue left behind and she is bleeding relatively heavy. What are the options at that time? So I think the the options are really going to be dictated by how stable right. she is. You know, if she's bleeding so much that it's starting to affect her her heart rate or her blood pressure is mm-hmm. too low, that's more of an emergency situation. It's not the common, right. most common thing that happens. Those right. are immediate those are the things that we're we're on alert for. But most of the time, you know, as long as the patient's doing okay, it's a little bit heavier. We have a couple options. We can either give medication to Mm -hmm. push out whatever whatever tissue was there. Medication specifically would be uh, mesoprostol or Cytotec. Right. That's sort of like it, it's caused the uterus to basically contract. Right. We don't right. like call it a contraction because it's so early, but it's right. sort of like squeezes the muscle, the uterus, and sort of to expel everything that's exactly. left. Exactly. Okay. And so it's kind of like a, an extra push to sort of finish the, the process. Mm-hmm. That's something pluses and minuses of that are, you, you know, there's a little bit more privacy. You get to be able to go home. You can manage it. Right. If, if that's something that you feel comfortable with. And so you sort of take the the medicine out of it, if you will. It's right. a little bit less institutionalized and medicalized. Right. Oftentimes with that, I do tell patients, you know, with this medication, mesoprostol, things to keep an eye out for would be, you know, low-grade fevers can happen, a little bit of nausea, a little vomiting, possibly some diarrhea, but generally it's a very well-tolerated medication. Right. If that doesn't sound like your cup of tea and we're in the office, the other thing that we could do is do a quick procedure called the manual vacuum aspiration, where we kind of go in with with a straw into Mm -hmm. the uterus and we remove the tissue in a procedure that lasts no more than three to four minutes. Right. And that's done vaginally, like through the cervix. Vaginally, through the cervix. There's no cutting. There, there, you know, it's it's gentle suction and some intense cramping at the moment when the procedure is happening. But after that, women usually tolerate it very, very well. They go home, you know, Motrin alone is, is, Motrin or Advil is enough to sort of take care of the cramps. Right. And generally, you know, procedures like that where we go into the uterus from below through the cervix, the painful part of it is putting something through the cervix, like the dilation of the cervix. And so if someone's in the midst of a miscarriage, generally the cervix is a little bit open. It's a little bit soft. It's not as difficult as if someone just sort of walks in and you're trying to, you know, get something in the cervix that's closed. And so that's one of the reasons it's a little bit easier for women to tolerate that procedure Mm -hmm. in an office setting. Uh, I mean, it, it's also possible to do in a hospital with anesthesia. So there is a way of to course. do it. It's a little bit more elaborate in terms of planning because right. you're not in the office of the hospital. But OK, it's quite doable. And these are procedures that are done all the time. And so if someone is having exquisite pain or we have concerns maybe that she's not so stable and maybe needs to be in a hospitalized setting with more you know, monitoring and an anesthesiologist, we could do it there. But I think for most women, doing it in the office is an option because, mm-hmm. again, the cervix is already a little bit open, and this is going to actually make them feel better usually because it finishes the, the miscarriage, yep. and then they sort of get on, they get to be on the back end of it quicker exactly. than they would have. Plus, you know, they're coming in because they're having symptoms. So you have the option of the procedure, the medication. Are there any circumstances you may just sort of like wait and see how it happens? That's an option where right. you're not having heavy bleeding, right. right? In those scenarios, if the bleeding's not too heavy and right. there's no real 
sort of concerns that that it's going to get heavier waiting a little bit is, is, is an option yeah. you know but i usually reserve the watch and wait approach for folks who are who are sticking around who are yeah. in town i don't recommend that for you know right if you're if you're flying down to florida mm-hmm. or going skiing in aspen i, I don't right. usually recommend that just so that we can stay in close communication but i think that the main risk that you want to keep in mind with with watching and waiting is a it's unpredictable so it could take a relatively long period of time it's mm-hmm. not unusual to go two to three weeks and the process is still ongoing right and more rarely you know some sort of infection when you watch and wait because the pregnancy tissue is still kind of hanging around and right especially if the cervix is open it's possible that you could have an ascending infection right. from the vagina as a review for the vast majority of women who are unfortunately experiencing a spontaneous pregnancy loss or a miscarriage, it will happen at home or you know, out of a hospital setting, out of a doctor setting. It'll be unpleasant, certainly, both physically and you know, emotionally, but is very rarely dangerous or requires any medical intervention whatsoever. And for the women who might, either because they're having more pain than they think they should be having or more bleeding, generally they come in and the evaluation is pretty straightforward and the treatment is usually pretty straightforward as well. Either do nothing, do some medication or do a a procedure, which is a low risk procedure. And then they'll physically recover pretty quickly from this. Now, what about the setting where we diagnose that the pregnancy is no longer viable, but it's still inside? So either we call that the missed abortion or it's a miscarriage, but it hasn't passed yet. And that, again, happens much, much more commonly nowadays than it ever did before because we have ultrasound and we see this all the time. So she feels fine. She has no symptoms whatsoever in terms of you know bleeding or cramping. As she either does have pregnancy symptoms or doesn't have pregnancy symptoms, but she has this there and we know it's not going to grow anymore. So how do you counsel them about their options at that point? You know, at that point, I tell them that they have the opportunity to make their their miscarriage experience their own they have all four options they right. can watch and wait right they can sort of wait for the symptoms that we talked about the light light bleeding like cramping that sort of builds and then it stops on mm-hmm. its own that would be the most hands-off approach they could go for medications the same mm-hmm. medications that we use to help complete the process can also be started used to start the process so there there's a two medication approach where right. one of the medications mifepristone is used about 24 hours before you take the mesoprostol the medication that brings on the the cramping and that first medication is actually it's sort of like an anti progesterone Correct. so it sort of like blocks the progesterone hormone which is sustaining the pregnancy even right. though it's not viable so it blocks that and then you do the medication yes you, you and that's sort of a little bit newer, right? Yeah, it's new. In 2018, there, there you know, there was relatively new research that showed yeah. that it, it helps quicken the time to completion of the, right. of the process. And so... Right. And lowers the chance you'll end up needing a procedure exactly. afterwards. Because sometimes the medications don't work. Exactly. Right? And then yeah. they're not 100%. So no. the, the odds are better if you take the two medication regimen versus just the one. Right. Again, this is for someone who's not having symptoms. Correct. Right. And so, you you know, you could take the two medication regimen and then you can also, you still have the surgical options, right. the, the procedures, either either in the office or you could go into the, to the hospital, into the operating room. Right. So if someone is deciding, thinking about the, the first option, the, the least sort of hands-on approach or the more hands-off approach, we just watch and wait. How long might it be 
until she actually miscarries from the time you notice it on ultrasound. I've had patients where it can take about four to five weeks. You know, when I see people, and I unfortunately I have to diagnose this in ultrasound almost every day, I mean, because it's a very common occurrence, and I go over the options with them, and ultimately, you know, she's going to decide with her doctor. If I'm her doctor, then, you know, we'll decide together. And what I tell them about the expected management is that it, it's perfectly safe, right, for her. It's not a, a risky thing to do. It's not a dangerous thing to do. There's There's always the risk that she'll have those complications of a miscarriage, like, you know, bleeding that we spoke right. about before, but not high. It's still very low. The real downside is that it's unexpected when it's going to happen. Right. It could be tomorrow. It could be in six weeks. And that's sometimes very troubling for people. You know, they're like, you mean I might be at work or I might be on vacation or I might be home and I don't really right. know. And, and so, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. Now, someone comes in and sometimes they're already bleeding and I see the pregnancy sort of lower down in the uterus, I can give her a better sense that it's going to be earlier rather than later, but that's very rough. Right. It's not, there, there's no way to say for sure when it's going to happen. And so some people are just not comfortable with that uncertainty and the timing. Also, sometimes people are eager to try again and the longer it takes to complete this miscarriage, the longer it'll be till you can, you know, try for the next pregnancy. So that's a reason someone might not want to do it. Okay. What about the medication? What might be a reason someone, you know, would choose it or wouldn't choose it? Again, privacy and, and mm -hmm. sort of having more control over this scenario is usually what's appealing to mm -hmm. a lot of patients for that option. I would say that, you know, someone with a history of significant blood loss, either during their periods or the, at baseline, you know, they might be a little right. anemic. I'd probably steer them away from that from the medication from the medication right. okay. i usually tell them that it's going to be heavier bleeding than a period right so if if at baseline they they lose a lot of blood to begin with or right. you know they they need transfusions or to yeah. get through their periods then right. i don't think that's the right option right. that's unusual right very unusual yeah yeah sometimes you know you'll have someone come in, i've only had like one or two patients but they'll they'll come in and they'll say oh i can't take that i've Right, right. Taken it before and I've had a bad right for medical reasons. To it. I can't medical take it. reasons. But typically it gives them a little bit more control. You know, they're able to take the first medication. They take the first medication in the office. Right. They usually have to wait twenty four hours and then twenty four to forty eight hours. Yeah. And so it gives them a little bit more flexibility on the timing. Right. You know, I, I have patients who take the first medication on a Friday. Right. And then on Saturday. So it happens over the weekend potentially. It yeah. over the weekend and or they'll they'll time it such that it happens while they're sleeping or right. at night. It gives a lot of patients control in a situation that otherwise feels very helpless and, and yeah. out of their control. I feel the same way. The way I explain it is it, it's sort of like the first option, but with a little bit better timing mm -hmm. in terms you can exactly. say, you could say when it's going to happen. So, you know, you're getting a little bit more intervention, um, not a procedure, but a pill, but it helps you sort of on the expectation. And it's, it's pretty effective. I mean, it's generally based on the study, like 70, 80, 90% of the time it works. They miscarry as they would have naturally, but just expedited. It happens when they do the medications. And then there's a percentage of people, they take both medicines and nothing happens. Right. Nothing. They're just like, what? It's like they didn't take it. And other people will get, you know, sort of the miscarriage that doesn't complete and they ultimately have to do something else. But that would be true if they waited also. There's always that risk. So it just really changes the timing. And again, I find that some women are just like, it's just a mental thing. Some women are like, yes, I'm that person. And I was like, no, I don't want any part of that. And it, right. it's it's almost like a gut decision for a lot of people. And then in terms of the, the decision, let's just say to do any procedure, like whether it's in the office or hospital, what would be the advantages or disadvantages to, to going to like a, a procedure to complete the pregnancy loss? 
the quickness with which mm-hmm. that episode resolves, I think, is the number one reason why a lot of women yeah. do choose a procedure, right? Yeah. They, they come in, you diagnose them in the morning with a miscarriage. I see them 30 minutes later. I have the ability to to solve that and, and fix that problem right. in the next like hour or two hours. Right. And then I send them home with a prescription for for wine and Netflix and, right. and relaxing with their partner. Right. I think that that quick resolution right. is something that's really appealing. But you end up sort of trying to balance that that quickness with people's fears of a, a procedure. Sure. Period. Right. 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 There are risks to procedures. There are. Again, the risk is very, very low. Thankfully, they're uh, low. Yeah. You know, the, the chances of poking a hole in the uterus right. called a perforation right. is really only five in a thousand to, you know, one in a hundred. Less than one percent. It's less than one percent. You know, it happens, but it doesn't happen often. Over 99% of the time, you get the tissue. You decrease the chances that anything's going to be left behind, you know, which which can happen with, with the medication. Like you said, if not all of it comes out, then you're you're at risk for needing a procedure anyway. And right. so for some people, they're like, well, if I, I don't want to do the medication and then also risk having to do a procedure, I'd rather just go ahead and have the procedure. I tell people the same thing that it's the most predictable about what's going to happen because you're going to go into the procedure and then you're going to come out and it's going to be done. So that's a big plus. And for people who want this done yesterday, that's the way to do it. But there's some risk to a procedure. There's risk to not doing the procedure also, right? There's risk to either way, right? You know, there are different risks, right? So like poking a hole in the uterus, uterine perforation is specific to having a procedure, but that risk of the retained tissue and having the bleeding and this is specific to not doing the procedure really, or more common if not doing the procedure. But the risks are really low across the board, even though they're slightly different. And I usually tell people that the decision about whether to wait, do the medicine or do the procedure is much more of a personality decision than it is a medical decision. Because all three are safe, all three are reasonable, all three will ultimately work, so to speak, meaning she'll ultimately miscarry the pregnancy completely. And it's just a matter of what women want. The people who are sort of like, I want this done yesterday, I want to wake up tomorrow and not be thinking about what's going to be, what's going to be, I just want to be like sad and that's it. They generally choose the procedure. And for women who are like, I don't want to be touched. No doctors, no procedures, no poking, no prodding. Fine. Then they wait and that's okay. And then the people are sort of like in the middle, like I'd rather not poke and prod, but I sort of want to do this a little quicker. We'll take the medicine. And I encourage them to make the decision that's best for them. Whatever sits right for them is certainly okay with me. And it's bad enough they have to go through a miscarriage. You know, at least they can have some agency over what what's going to happen to them in that circumstance. And so I, I'm fine with all three options, unless there's a compelling reason to pick one over the other, in which case I would tell her, but that's the exception. Right. The other question that I often get is which option is going to not impact future pregnancy. Right. Right. None, none of them will. And none of them. Yeah. The answer is yeah. none. <laughs> right. You, know, you get to pick whichever one helps you emotionally move forward right. in a way that works for you. Right. The only difference is the procedure you can try quickest because you've miscarried earliest. The medications, right. that, but that's just, again, just timing, not in terms of like future ability to have kids or, you know, complications causing the inability to have children. It's not really relevant to any of those three, fortunately. Now, we were discussing the procedure you were mentioning, you could do it in the office sort of right away, or you can do it in the hospital. And so we said for the woman who's already bleeding and her source a little bit open, it's pretty straightforward to do in the office. But for the woman who's not having any of those symptoms, what are sort of the pros and cons of doing it as an office-based procedure, like you were describing, versus doing it in the hospital with an anesthesiologist getting some sedation. The anesthesiologist, being that we're not in the hospital, the options for pain management are significantly limited. 
Now, it doesn't mean that I don't have patients who tolerate it perfectly fine. And oftentimes, the more the more motivated patients are the ones that do the best, right? You know, the ones who want to get get it over with and who want to move on often they do very, very well with a Percocet, a Valium, and then some some local numbing medicine during right. the procedure on the cervix on the cervix, right. right? And then whereas in the hospital, it's intravenous medication, and right. they're sort of they're not Knocked not out totally. To the, yeah, they're asleep, not knocked but, out to the point like if you're getting your gallbladder removed, right? Or you put a tube down your throat. But, but they're not going to remember. You're the asleep process. enough. Right. Yeah, asleep enough. Exactly. Right. What would be the reason? Is it just? A, is it simply just convenience that if you do in the office, you can sort of schedule it easier because you could do it right away versus the hospital maybe takes a day or two to schedule it? Is that really the main thing? I mean, for the plus side for doing it in the office. For the plus side for doing it in the office, I mean, scheduling is is really about it. I mean, yeah. it's more if there are history of, yeah. of medical issues or certain surgical procedures, if I think it's going to be a difficult process and it's going to be a little bit more uncomfortable, right. I, I need a little bit better control over it, right. then I would probably suggest you know, doing it in the hospital. Right. Or also the later they are in pregnancy, potentially. The further they're along, you know, we do limit how far along we do them in the office. But generally, if they're beyond 10 weeks, I typically would say that it should be done in the hospital, except for certain case by case. Just because you have to dilate the cervix a little more because the pregnancy is just a little bit wider, you know, to get out. So and that's just going to hurt more. Now, if someone has either of these procedures, what do you typically tell them to expect the day of, like when they go home, and then the next couple of days in terms of symptoms and pain and whatnot. I usually say the the first couple days, they could expect bleeding like a period. You know, at that at that point, I, I do counsel patients that it's not unusual to go through, you know, as many pads as they would during a period. The key thing to, to keep in mind is that not many of my patients use pads generally to go right. to make it through period. So <laughs> right. trying to find that tampon pad conversion factor, I think, right. is is also also important. But usually the bleeding's on par with a with a period and it can last a couple of days, but then it should start tapering off. And along with the with the bleeding comes cramping, also like a period can right. can be managed with, with Advil or Motrin or whatever was used to, to deal with menstrual cramping. And then usually within a week, week and a half, you start to see significantly less bleeding, less cramping. And, and by the time they, they show up at the, at the two week mm-hmm. follow up visit, you know, all their symptoms are, are gone. Right. No when more when do you tell them they can go back to work, for example? They could go back to work the next day. There's no time off. Obviously, with in the hospital with the procedure, you need some time for the anesthesia. I usually right. give them a day, day and a half. But with the office-based procedure, you know, I have some patients who, who walk in, have the procedure, go home later that day and, and get back to work. Yeah, for most women, the, the day after or if they have it in the morning, the night of, mm-hmm. it generally doesn't feel much different from a from a period, maybe a heavier period than normal, but it's usually nothing too remarkable, fortunately. Sometimes if people have severe pain afterwards, that's a clue to us that maybe there's some tissue that stayed behind or maybe there was something going on and we like to evaluate. But again, that's really unusual in those circumstances. Someone need a lot of pain medicine. And I generally tell people that, you know, just like you said, usually the bleeding stops within a couple of days and a couple of weeks, sort of depends on who they are, but usually towards the shorter end of that window. And then at a certain point, their body is going to sort of like reboot and they'll ovulate again. And I don't give women restrictions on when they can get pregnant again. I don't say right. you have to wait one, two, three cycles. People used to do that. I and say then, yeah, next yeah, cycle. Whenever. And, yeah. and I say usually what happens is it's unpredictable when you're going to get pregnant if you do it right away because you don't know when you're going to ovulate. So usually what happens is after the procedure, 
somewhere between four and eight weeks later, she'll get the next period, and then it's a little more predictable. But if she happens to get pregnant between the procedure and her next period, it's not dangerous. It's not no. increased risk of anything. And I tell them that that's okay if they're sort of emotionally ready to try again, then that's certainly okay with me. Some women are and some women aren't, and obviously that's that's their choice how they want to proceed. But generally after the procedure's done, you know, the, they come back in a couple of weeks just to talk, see how they're doing. A lot right. of it's more, you know, emotional slash social than actual medical. Cause if there was a complication, we would have known. And sometimes by then, if we've sent the, the tissue from the miscarriage for like genetic analysis, sometimes we'll have the results back because how we go about the next pregnancy may depend on what that showed again, which is for another podcast, but just that's something else to talk about. Is there anything else to really go over in that two week post operative visit? You know, the, the two week post operative visit, I usually, like you said, it's, it's just a check-in. Yeah. It's a check-in to see how they're doing. I take it as an opportunity to remind them that if they want to get pregnant, if this yeah. was a desired pregnancy right. and, and sort of the miscarriage was, was not expected. We go over the same sort of talking points that they can start trying to conceive as, as, as soon as they want. Some of them choose to wait. Most of them choose to keep trying. Right. Um, and I usually see them in a couple months. Occasionally I have, I have patients who, you know, this was an unintended pregnancy right. that they miscarried. It's sort of like a wake up call. Wait. Exactly. <laughs> and so we, we, I take, I take that opportunity to kind of sort of sit down and be like, you know, is this something that you wanted? Is this something that we want to start planning for? Right. Do you, you know, do I need to start you on prenatal vitamins or right. on the flip side, do you not want to experience this at all again? And do you want some sort of effective contraceptive method. Right. right. It really kind of depends. It's yeah. individualized. That two week visit for, for some patients, they they just want to come in and, and chat. For others, they they feel like they're totally fine and yeah. they we do it virtually. Like you said, if if there there usually is some sort of complaint if if something were to go wrong that right. would clue us in. So I generally don't find things that are that are unexpected right. at the two week visit. Right, exactly. If they came in and said, I'm still bleeding, then all right, maybe, you know, there's something right. wrong or my pain's unusual. But short of if those things aren't happening, it's very unusual. This is really important stuff. And I think it's a great review. And again, the, the key point is that unfortunately, this is very common. And some women, their experience of this will be, it sort of all happens on its own at home. And then everything's sort of done. And then they don't have to do anything medically. It's just obviously emotionally potentially difficult, but not medically. Some women have that and it's not complete. And then they come to us and there's various options for what to do to help complete that miscarriage. And then unfortunately, a lot of women sort of find out just by an ultrasound, hey, you're pregnant, but it's not viable, which is, you know, it's sort of like a sad moment. And then you have to not only process that, but we got to figure out what to do. But fortunately, there are several options that are all safe. They're all reasonable. It's unusual that one wouldn't be an option for a woman and she can sort of choose what's what sits best for her or, you know, which is the least undesirable. I mean, none of these are desirable, obviously. And so it's uh, she gets to choose. And fortunately, they're all safe. And then when it's finished, if she wants to get pregnant again, she can. Yeah. The, the other thing that I that I've started sort of talking to, especially as I start to see partners mm -hmm. that are involved, you know, it, it struck me I was. I was out with some friends and I don't know how we got about around to it. I guess this just happens when you're, mm -hmm. you're an OBGYN. People started talking about how their, their partners or, or their wives or their girlfriends, you know, miscarried. And it, it always ends up being this like aha moment where it's like, I didn't realize you also, you know, yeah. have dealt with that. And yeah. so I find myself sort of tossing that out there and encouraging partners to sort of 
talk about this because just like, you know, losing a baby or losing a child or a loved one, grief associated with miscarriages are, are, is very real. And and so we, you know, I, I do explain to patients that you end up having patients who, who experience grief, not just for that pregnancy, but the future that was previously being planned or, you know, and so I, I try to make as much space as possible for the patient as well as, as their partner to sort of talk about this, because I, I feel like the the more they're talking about it, the more common it, it'll be in, in our society to sort of communicate about and ultimately end up supporting each other when we're faced with early pregnancy loss. Yeah, it's, it's such a good point. And, you know, when we had the podcast before with Shira Billa talking about pregnancy loss, in that podcast, we're talking about later pregnancy losses. People grieve over the early pregnancy losses, different people to different degrees, obviously. Some people a little bit, some people moderate, some people devastating, again, based on who they are, what their circumstances are, what was going on with that pregnancy. And and it's real. And that itself is something that needs to be remembered and addressed and talked about. But on top of that, the one of the other sort of complicating wrinkles in this is people usually don't tell anybody that right. it happened. Most people, you said, don't don't even know how common it is. And until they have a miscarriage themselves and they start talking to people and they find out that nearly everybody they know went through this. And that's one of the ways in which people can sometimes heal or process or grieve is knowing that this isn't unique to them. This happens to others, which is somehow, you know, it's comforting in the sense to know that you're not sort of like uniquely troubled with right. this. Or that, yeah. that there's something wrong with you. Right. You know? Yeah. Like this there, only happens to me. Yeah, exactly. You know, while medically and physically there, you know, the, the two week post-op or post-procedure follow-up, right. um, either for taking the medicine or mm-hmm. for the procedure, I do find it, you know, it, it serves as a sort of peer-to-peer yeah. you know, counseling and, and yeah. support opportunity because it's it's really hard to, you know, it's almost non-existent, the support out there for people who have experienced early pregnancy loss. And, and it, it can be, it can have an impact uh, yeah. emotionally on, on the way that, you know, they move forward. So I, I think, I like to take that opportunity to sort of talk to them about that as well. Yeah, that's a really important point. I think that's really a key lesson in sort of finishing this, that it's there's so much more than just sort of like the medical management of it. It's just the overall experience of it and how to process it and grieve through it. And it's just a really important thing for us to remember, obviously, as we help care for women going through this, but for the women themselves, that it's these uh, feelings and you know, grief are normal and expected in a sense. Excellent. Well, Sarp, thank you so much for coming on to talk about this topic. Thanks for having important me. One, and I'm certain we'll have you on again. Looking forward to it. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman Podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.